This commandment strikes at the heart of a materialistic culture. And the biggest problem with covetousness is that it gets you into, not just that it gets you into trouble, but it causes you to lose your focus. Instead of becoming a giving person, you become a taking person. You're always wanting what someone else has. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 13 of our study of the book of Romans, and in verse 8, we see that Christians are called not to owe anything to anyone other than the love that is due them. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy has already noted that consumer debt can lead to slavery. The Bible says that the borrower is slave to the lender. But we also see that consumer debt leads to entanglement in affairs other than those that allow us to focus on God's kingdom. We get concerned with how to pay what is due, and we might be more concerned with how God can use our finances for His glory. Listen, there was a lot of things we could have owned a lot faster, but I can walk you through my house. There are so many stories behind so many different objects because we saw God provide in His timing and in His way. My dad taught me a very valuable principle not knowing that it was necessarily a biblical principle, but it was concerning consumer debt, that you do not buy something you do not have the money for. Now, I've used credit cards since I was 18 years old. I'm not against the use of credit cards unless you have no self-discipline. But if you don't have the money in the bank to to back the credit card, don't use it. I never once, never once paid a late payment fee, and I've never once paid one penny of interest to the credit card company. But so many of God's people are entangled. They are trapped. They are in bondage because they're doing finances the world's ways, and they are entangled in the affairs of everyday life. And when that happens, there's a loss of energy. There's frustration. There's bondage. There's worry. And your free time thoughts are not on the investment of the kingdom of God, but many times on your debt problems. And Jesus spoke, one, to lost people, that these kinds of things, money, could keep people out of the kingdom. Remember in the parable of the sower where he highlights three out of four different soils and three soils as to why people will not receive him as Messiah? He said, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And then God gives all this instruction in addition to save people. Why? Because as Hebrews 12 says, we're to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. I go to bed at night not worried about paying my creditors. And because of that, I'm not only able to tithe, but by the grace of God, I'm able to give far beyond the tithe. Don't ask me how much. It's a secret between God and me but far beyond the tithe to invest in the things that really, truly matter. Let me give you another reason why debt is discouraged in the Bible. Not only does it lead to slavery, not only does it lead, lead to entanglement, entanglement, but it, it presumes upon the future. When you go into debt, you have in many ways mortgaged your financial future. You've made a commitment to pay future income that you haven't even earned yet. And it's a law of God. You cannot spend money that you have not yet worked for. 
It's a law of God. And if you spend money you have not yet worked for, you will either ultimately work for it, or someone else will work for it and they'll give you that money, or someone will just entirely forgive the debt altogether. But when you go into debt for money you have not yet worked for, you're assuming and presuming on the future that everything will continue just like it is, that you'll have a job next week, that um, you'll get that bonus you're hoping for, that there'll be no major medical bills. And you may find that things don't go as you anticipated. Proverbs warns, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what tomorrow may bring. God teaches us that it is okay to plan for the future. In fact, he tells us it is wise to plan for the future. And we're going to be studying this on Wednesday. But it is wrong to presume upon the future. James says, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business to make a profit. Then he says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. A fourth reason that debt is discouraged in the Bible is it means you're living beyond your God-given means. It means, in essence, you're not content. If God gives you $40,000 to live on and you spend 110% of your income and you spend $44,000, what have you said? You basically said, God, I'm not content what you've entrusted to me. I reject what you have for me. And God tells us we're not to do that. Remember what Jesus said in that parable we studied just a few weeks ago on Wednesday. He said, therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth or unrighteous mammon, who will entrust true riches to you? If you know the parable, he's saying, if you are not faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, worldly riches, then the things that really matter and really count in this life, you're not going to experience it. And so the only way to experience God's best is to live within your means. And if you live beyond your means, it's just wrong. It's sin. And it is finally a lack of faith. For instance, when you use a credit card, what are you typically saying? You're saying, I don't need to seek God on this. I just put it on the credit card. And we miss the opportunity to see God's hand. We miss the opportunity to see God provide. And so very often we've replaced prayer and faith and seeking God's face with the world's way. We just put it on the credit card. So when God says here, owe nothing to anyone, he's not saying all debt is wrong, but it must be put within the framework of Scripture and all that God says. A pastor friend was preaching in Nashville, Tennessee, and he noticed a man in this congregation under great conviction. And right about the time of the invitation, he got up and he walked out and he looked mad. The pastor who had invited this dental surgeon to his church went to his office the next day and asked the secretary if he could see him. And the dentist came out and he said, cancel my next two appointments. He brought him back into his office, closed the door and locked it. <laughs> he wasn't sure what he was going to do. He said, I want you to tell me more about Jesus Christ. I want you to tell me what it means to be a Christian. And he did and he led the man to Christ. And then pastor, just before he left, he said, you know, I don't really understand what happened last night. The reason I came here today is because you got up during the service, you looked like you were under conviction, like God was dealing with you, and then you turned mad, and you got up and you left. Was it something that I said? He said, oh, no, it wasn't anything you said. It was the choir. He said, it was the choir? 
Yes, he said, I saw a half dozen people up there singing through those teeth that I repaired who have not paid their bills. And when I heard that, I thought, how often is that the case? There's another one of those born-agains who owe me money. And I've seen Christians rationalize, well, I didn't pay the rent, he didn't fix the plumbing, he did this. And if you owe money and it's not paid on time, it is dishonoring to the Lord. You say, well, pastor, how can I get my finances in order? How can I get out of this debt in financially according to the Word of God? Number one, come on Wednesday nights. Some of you can't come, and I understand that. Some of you ought to be here because you don't really understand the biblical principles, and you're not able to teach your children and your grandchildren. Number two, start tithing. You say, well, God doesn't need my money. No, God owns it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand world, on the thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains and everything in it, the psalmist said. He doesn't need your money, but you need to give your money. That's why Christ in 16 of the 38 parables spoke on the subject of money. It's one of the tools that God uses to grow us. Now, giving a tithe doesn't mean automatically you're going to be rich or that all your needs will be supplied. Please understand. But let me say this. I've met Christians who have tithed who don't understand God's principles of debt. And they borrowed money for their personal accounts, for their house, for their business that violated the Word of God. They didn't do it knowingly. They did it unknowingly in ignorance. And they got into trouble. I know Christians who have tithed, who have gotten out of the will of God. And so God has taken them to the woodshed and He's given them a divine spanking by dealing with their finances. But I have never known a Christian who understands God's principles about saving, giving, and debt, and investing, and have applied those principles who have had a poor financial testimony. And if you are not paying your bills on time, you have really lost in the eyes of many people your platform to share Jesus Christ. So he's talking here about the Christian's debt to his neighbor. And first, he is underscoring that we are to pay what is due. Secondly, we are to demonstrate what is best. We're to demonstrate what is best. It is found here in verse 8 as we keep reading, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. So there's a debt that we are to never finish paying. There's a debt that is to be forever remained outstanding. We are to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. This is a debt you can never pay off. And you're not supposed to pay off. You never reach a point in your life where you say, well, I've loved that person enough and I need to stop. Or I've shown enough kindness to people, I don't need to do it anymore. Now, Paul is making a contrast in this verse between owing and not owing. To put it in contemporary terms, you max out your debt. You never max out your debt and then refuse to pay it, but you max out your love and you always pay it and you keep on paying it and you never stop paying it. That's the thought. Now, I want you to notice here, if you have the New American Standard, right before those two words, his neighbor, look down into your Bible, you see the little word one, right before the words. You see it there? That is a little footnote. And if you go out into the margin of the New American Standard, it gives you a more literal rendering. It's good to have the NASB, which is, I think, the most precise English text that reflects the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic scriptures, the most precise English text that's available to us in our tongue. 
and it's really helpful too because when there's a literal rendering that can shed some more light, though it may be a little awkward in translation, it puts it in the margin. Or if, as in this case, there's a play on words, they'll put the note in the margin. If you go out into the margin, you note that it says that his neighbor should literally read the other. In other words, you could translate the verse, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves the other has fulfilled the law. It's a play on words. Now, in Greek, there are two words that are translated other or another. There's the word alos and the word biblios. I mean, the word alos and the word heteros. So think with me for a second. This is simple. You know what the word heteros means? It means another of the opposite. And it comes directly into English. So when we speak of a heterosexual, we're speaking of different sexes. When we speak of heterodoxy, it's in contrast to orthodoxy, what is true. Heterodoxy is bad doctrine, that which is false. So if I asked you this morning for a, a heteros biblios, you could give me any book you wanted, a book on skiing, on auto mechanics, on anything you wanted. It just means another of a different kind. But if I asked you for an alos biblios, you'd have to give me another book exactly like this one. Torn where it's torn, underlined where it's underlined. That's the word Jesus uses when he said, I will sell you, send you an alos helper, another helper, another one exactly like myself. And that's why he can say a few verses later in John 14, I will come to you. He doesn't use here in the text the word alos. He uses the word heteros. Why? Because he's underscoring a very important principle. He said, I want you to love one another, referring to the brethren, but I also want you to love the other. And so the NASB, to bring it out into English, says, I want you to love his neighbor. That is people who are unlike you. And that's a little harder to do. It's easy to love the spirit-filled Christian, but maybe the Christian who's not walking with God, it's a little more difficult. It's easier to love someone maybe who's saved than someone who's not necessarily saved. It's sometimes harder to love someone with a different personality, someone who doesn't always see things the way you see it, someone with different mannerisms, different social skills, maybe even someone who owes you money and hasn't paid you. And so Paul is saying, and he's underscoring here, that our love is to be non-discriminating. We're just to love those who are like us, and we're to love those who are unlike us. Now, whenever you speak about the topic of discrimination, it's a killer because most people's minds go to the place where they're not a discriminatory person. They say, I like white people. I like black people. I like Chinese people. I like Indian people. But then, if they really think about it, many times they are discriminatory. They say, well, he's not as educated as I am. Or, he's so educated, I can't even relate to him. Or, he's rich and wealthy, I don't want to hang around him. He doesn't even know how to work with his hands. He's not a man's man. And we take these principles and we say, well, he doesn't understand the finer things of life. Or, he's so cultured, I, I'm afraid my manners would be bad around him. Or do you know what kind of background he came from? Do you know what his family was like? Do you know the scandal he was involved in? This place is filled with people from scandalous backgrounds. And none of us deserve to sit in this place of worship, and I don't deserve to stand in this pulpit. 
You have the same sin nature I inherited from Adam, and your sin nature has the capacity to do absolutely anything. And if you didn't do it, it was only by the grace of God Almighty. I love that text when Paul says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous shall inherit the kingdom of God. But then in the same breath, he says, and such were some of you, but God saved you. We all have the same sin nature. We all have been cut out of the same dung heap. We may smell a little bit differently, but we've all been saved by grace. And so we're to love one another. We're to love those who are like us, and we're to love those who are unlike us. Third, he underscores, not only are we to pay what is due, not only are we to demonstrate what is best, we are to fulfill what is commanded. We're to fulfill what is commanded. Look now at verse 9. For this... You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Please notice how verse 9 begins with the two words, for this. Now, some of our English translations, in trying to clarify, they add a word. Some of your translations say, for the commandments. Understand the word commandment is not anywhere in the Greek text. That's an added word. It's helpful to leave it just like God said it because it causes you to reflect. Why is he saying for this? He's saying in light of what I have just said, because we are to love people like us and we are to love people unlike us for this, or you could say for this cause or for this reason, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Now, if you know the Ten Commandments, Part of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God. The other half deal with our relationship with each other. And so he quotes the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Why does he quote that commandment? Because if you really love a person, then you won't do anything to hurt that person. And you would not enter into a relationship with someone who is married because you would not want to destroy that covenant that they made with each other into God Almighty. But when you commit adultery, you are doing what is harmful to that person. You are messing with someone else's wife or even someone's potential wife. Then he says, you shall not murder. That's easy to understand because murder is the opposite of love. That's why Jesus said, to hate your brother is to be a murderer. And so love doesn't seek to destroy a life. Love seeks to protect a life. Then he says, you shall not steal, quoting the Eighth Commandment. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to slip into his garage and steal his lawnmower. You're not going to permanently borrow something from him, hoping he'll never want it back or that he won't miss it. I think of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. You know him, right? A wee little man, a little wee little man was he. He climbed up into the sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. You remember that? If you remember, the Lord Jesus went to his house one day and Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house. Remember, it was Zacchaeus who said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Zacchaeus did not become a Christian by stop stealing and started giving. No, he became a Christian because he embraced the Lord Jesus as Messiah. And because he embraced him as Messiah, his life was instantly transformed. He became a new creature in Christ. 
If you love the Lord, then stop stealing and wasting his time. If you love his church, then stop stealing your time, talent, and treasure that you're to invest in it. If you love your boss, then stop stealing company supplies from him. Finally, he quotes, because he's taking it out of the fuzzy of our day, and he's putting it into shoe leather. He said, you shall not covet. This commandment strikes at the heart of a materialistic culture. And the biggest problem with covetousness is that it gets you into, not just that it gets you into trouble, but it causes you to lose your focus. Instead of becoming a giving person, you become a taking person. You're always wanting what someone else has. And God doesn't want you to have that perspective. He wants you to be a giver, a lover. Remember, he illustrated this truth with a rich young ruler who came to him. And the Bible says in Mark 10 that that man knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That verse reveals a lot about him. He was healthy because he ran up to the Lord Jesus. He was humble in that he knelt before the Lord Jesus. He was respectful. He calls him good teacher, and he was teachable, and that he is seriously asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you remember what Jesus said to him? Because this, thought, this man thought he could do something to earn it. He said, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And then Jesus said to him, one more thing. One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, Jesus didn't hate this man. Mark tells us he felt love for this man. He had compassion. I heard a preacher recently, and he seemed to take a great delight that men and women were going to hell. When God condemns people to hell, I guarantee he would do it with a tear in his eye. Now, unfortunately, many have misunderstood the context of these words. They think that Jesus is teaching you can be saved by works. He was not teaching that. He was not telling the man that if he gave his money, he could earn salvation. He was actually teaching just the opposite, that he could not be saved by works. He was trying to highlight in this man that he had a problem, that his righteousness fell short of the righteousness of God Almighty, that he needed forgiveness. Now, you might be thinking, well, was he being dishonest by the statements he made? Well, if you know, again, the Ten Commandments, half of them deal with our relationship with God. The other half, which he quotes here, deal with our relationship with man. The first half, no other gods, no graven images, don't take the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath day holy, the fifth commandment, a transition one in many ways, our relationship to our father and mother, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, don't covet. Now, do you remember on that occasion when Jesus was being tested by a lawyer, by a scribe? And the lawyer came questioning him, Lord, what's the greatest of all the commandments? There were 638 commandments in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In that statement, he summarized the whole Decalogue, the whole of the Old Testament, all of the law and the Psalms and the prophets. And so in this counter, encounter with the rich young ruler, Jesus in essence is saying, let's see really how much you love your neighbor and how much you love God. Give all your money to the poor. I can't do that. Come follow me. I can't do that either. 
Jesus was underscoring that he didn't really love God nor his neighbor. And Paul is doing the same thing, but not with a lost person, but with us who are saved here in Romans 13. For this cause, for this reason, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you try to keep these commandments outwardly without loving people like you or without loving people who are unlike you, then you've really not kept it. If you truly love, you will love both inwardly and outwardly. And then he finishes in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Becoming a Christian is not based on loving your neighbor. It is based on receiving Christ. And if you go home today and you've never had a birth from above and you try to pull this off, it won't happen. You may be consistent for a half an hour and then you'll stumble. You have to first be born again. You must first be regenerated by the Spirit. But once regeneration takes place and you begin to grow and mature in your relationship with Christ as your mind is renewed through Scripture, then we can begin to fulfill these commands. If you've never received Christ, I invite you to receive Him today. Let's bow together in prayer. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to remind you that there is a debt that you can never pay. When a man has been 100 million years in hell, he'll not have one less second to spend there. But I want to tell you this morning that an eternal, infinite person in a finite period of time paid your eternal debt that would take you an eternity to pay. There on Golgotha, in his own body on the cross, he took the wrath for every evil thought, word, or deed you've ever done or might do. Once for all time, he died for your sin, and he demonstrated his ability when he was raised from the dead. And someday you are going to meet him face to face, either in judgment or in friendship. If you're uncertain today where you would spend eternity, then I invite you in the quietness of your heart, wherever you may be, if you're watching us today in a different country, as many are, if you're listening to us on the radio, if you're on the Bluffton campus, wherever you are, I invite you there in the quietness of your heart to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, we know that these commands that we have studied today are written to people who've already made that decision. Thank you that you love us unconditionally in Christ. You've credited us with his righteousness. Your son says that you love us as much as you love your own son. But thank you that you love us so much that you do not want to keep us the way we are. And so help us to take the truths that we have studied today and to ask, Lord, where do you want me to begin? What do you want me to do next as a child of God? And help us to look to you and your power and the Holy Spirit who lives in us to pull it off. We ask it for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen. We've been listening to Practical Advice in a message entitled The Christian's Debt, part of our study in the Book of Romans. To listen again to this or any of the messages from our series in Romans, use the Search the Scriptures app for tablets and smartphones or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
There you can also find Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, or you can listen to Rare But Real on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. To order a CD or DVD copy of today's message, call 877-787-7478 and request program ROM63. Tomorrow, Pastor Brogy begins a message entitled, God's Clock, part of our ongoing study in Romans. Join us then as we search the scriptures.